6, verse 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, I was the first kid in my family to go to college, and meaning in all of my family in any way to go to college. And I remember the night before my first night of college. So it was the night before, mom and dad really didn't know what to expect from college, so they sat me down and in the kitchen and around the table we had a conversation. I don't remember loads of what they said, I know they warned me about different things and things that they thought could be coming my way as a college student and they tried their best to prepare me as they knew how for what lay ahead. It was uh, 1986 was the year I graduated high school. I know that uh, there was so much unknown. I remember, I've shared this maybe with you before, uh, I think I have, I remember getting my roommate's name in the mail. And when I got my roommate's name in the mail, uh, his name was Ashish Gajanan Shambhag. And I looked at that name and thought, what in the world? And I had a neighbor, uh, an older, real stately lady. Her name was Mrs. Baker. I went over to talk to Mrs. Baker, and, and I told her about it. And she said to me, well, at least he's going to be smart. Her assumption was with a name like that, you had to have a brain in your head. And so um, mom and dad really didn't know how to prepare me because they had never been to college. And so they just didn't know what to expect. And my older brother decided not to go. So they just didn't know what to expect. So they said these different things, gave me this speech. This is what you got to do. This is what you don't need to do, et cetera, et cetera. It was final words before the launch into this unknown place uh, from mom and dad. And and, uh, and I, uh, I really appreciate their concern. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, that's what you're reading. You are reading a book that, are, that, are, that is uh, comprised of final words from Moses. And Moses is on the uh, west side of the Jordan River, just northwest of the Dead Sea. He has this crowd there, and uh, he restates the law in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is comprised of three different speeches, And we're in the first of those speeches here in Deuteronomy 6. Moses has himself never been to the promised land, nor will he be able to go. God has said, Moses, you won't go into the promised land. So he's never been, nor will he be able to go. And in light of that, he talks with them. 
He gives them these three speeches and he talks about God's mighty acts and he talks about the covenant. And in this speech, uh, Moses is going to lay some things out for them that they need to hear. What you must also understand is that when Moses led them out of Egypt down into the Sinai Peninsula, uh, God gave him the law first there. And that's the book of Leviticus. In Exodus, uh, we see Moses getting the law. That's the book of Leviticus, he writes. Then they trek up to a town called Kadesh Barnea. They camp out there, send in the spies. You remember from last week, 10 bring back a bad report, 2 bring back a good report. The people believe the bad report. God's ready to wipe them off the planet. And uh, instead of doing that, Moses intercedes and God says, here's the plan. Everybody over the age of 20 will die. Now, you've got to understand that the numbers say, the book of Numbers say that the numbers of the people who came out of Israel, of Egypt, were 600,000 men. If you do the math, you add the women and add the children to that. Over the course of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the funerals on the conservative end of things would be 750,000 funerals. On the conservative end. 750,000 funerals in that 40 years. And all that is left is this young group of people, 20 years of age and younger. And they've got to, except for Joshua and Caleb, and they've got to cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land. And so Moses gives them Four imperatives, four commands. And if you're taking notes, you'll need to jot them down because they are fitting for us today. In the second sermon in this series, uh, Ready to Launch, uh, How to Launch Your Kids Out into the World, these four imperatives are critical. They are hear, fear, love, and teach. Hear, fear, love, And teach, hear, O Israel, is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word hear in the Hebrew is shema. And it's it's what uh, Israelites and what observant Jews today call this statement, the shema. As a matter of fact, committed Jews to this day recite this statement twice a day. What does the statement say? It go, say, mean? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. That's the first part of the statement. And the first part of the statement means that the Lord is the God of Israel. He is personally their God. And the second part of the statement means that there is only one God. What does that matter? Here's why it matters. It matters because they're about to cross the Jordan River into a land that is inhabited by groups of people. The Perizzites are there. The Jebusites are there. The Amorites are there. The Amalekites are there. They're all of these people, the Jebusites, to name a few of them. And all of those people have their own gods with an S on the end. All of those people have their own worship, have their own way of doing things. And we may look at that and go, oh, that's no big deal until we discover that some of them sacrificed their children 
to their gods. They literally offered up their babies to their gods. That some of them, worship of their gods involved the enslavement of women in sexual practice. God, knowing that, speaks through Moses and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There aren't many gods, there is only one God. And he alone is God. This is a statement of exclusivity, and there are people who struggle with that statement even today. How can you exclusively say there is only one God and only one way to that God through Jesus Christ? It is Jesus' claim himself that Jesus is the one and only way to the one and only true God And Moses is saying, hear Israel, when you go in, you must hear this and remember this. Now, when uh, federal agents are trained to identify counterfeit money, what is surprising, and I tracked this down again this week, I'd heard it years ago, just to make sure it's voracious, and what is surprising is that they do not spend their time looking at counterfeit money. They spend their time looking at the real thing. They examine what really is so that when anything passes through that isn't, they'll notice that it isn't. That indeed is how you and I come to know what isn't by knowing who is. You could spend the rest of your life trying to study all the other religions and all the other possibilities and all the other uh, uh, probabilities and you will, will never exhaust all the ways that people have devised to get to God. Or you can decide, I'll know the one true God. The other night I had a couple Montreat students in my car heading back from uh, Greenville having watched Hannah play and one of them has just given his life to Christ. And so he had questions. And I guess he thought I've got prof slash pastor in my car so I'm going to take full advantage. He started as soon as we hit the main road and he stopped when I dropped him off. One question after another, after another, after another. Remarkable questions. Great questions. Why? He comes from a family that has been religious but had no relationship with God. All of a sudden, he has this newfound relationship with God. He has all these questions. Just one question after another, after another. He wants to know who God is. I want to ask you a question. Do you still want to know him like that? Like If you've known him for a long time, are you used to him? Are you just comfortable with with what you know at this point? Or is there still a hunger in you that says, God, I want to know you more. Uh, God, I want to know more about you. All right, so command number one, hear. Command number two is fear. Fear. Fear and love are used just, they they run down the same track in the book of Deuteronomy. Why is that? Well, to love God without fearing him leads to sentimentality. If you love God but you don't fear him, then he's like a grand Santa Claus in the sky. 
All right, and he'll give you whatever you want whenever you want. To fear God without loving him leads to brutality. You will view him as a brutal God who is demanding. So in our relationship with him, we are taught in the book of Deuteronomy and out through, uh, throughout Scripture to, to love God and to fear God. So let's talk about fear. What does it mean? What does it look like? Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 6 gives us some insight. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son. How? By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. Here's how to show God that you fear him. Do what he says, right? Do what he says. Fear, and we might use the word respect interchangeably for the word fear. Uh, When we really fear God, we do what he says. Now, here is the problem. All right. Herein lies the problem. We got to do all his commandments, but I have a question for you. Everybody pay attention. How many of you have messed up this week? Raise your hand. All right. Thank you. Put your hands down. If you didn't raise your hands, you just messed up. So we're all in the same boat now. Why? Because we've all made mistakes this week. All of us, either in deed, either in thought, emotive, we all mess up. So if we are to keep God's commands, and yet God's commands seem to elude us, they seem to get away from us, they seem to escape us, how do we do it? We just sang in that song that that Christ is my everything. We just sang in that song, the power to keep your commands could never come from me. What does that mean? Here's what it means is that God's commands are tough at times. And we can't keep them. And we will fail. So Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, and he makes this statement. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and hear and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right. Honestly, I remember hearing that. I memorized that early. I remember hearing that growing up. And here's my idea of of that invitation from Jesus. It's been a hard, long day. Maybe it's been a hard, long week. And Jesus says, hey, come to me. I'll give you rest. And Jesus is like this divine rest area, all right? And so I stop. He gives me all the rest I need. And then I go out in my own effort until I get tired again. And when I get tired again, I come back to him and he gives me rest again. But there's one word in there. You remember in literature when you talk about double entendre, meaning two meanings, one word with two meanings? There's one word in there that has two meanings. It's the word yoke. All right, doesn't mean the part of an egg. It's not spelled that way. It's Y-O-K-E. All right, what is a yoke? A yoke is two things. One is if you go into Cracker Barrel, you'll see one. All right, so it's that wooden thing that goes like this. All right, has the bar across. You lift the bar up, put that underneath two animals' necks, put the bar across, and those animals work together in one yoke to plow the field. So when Jesus says, take my yoke 
upon you. He's saying, all right, I'll stick my neck in this side. You stick your neck in this side, and together we'll plow the fields. It it isn't divine rest stop. Let me work as hard as I can, and when I've come to the end of myself, let me find Jesus to give me rest. No, no, no. I want to go through this with you day in and day out. Take my yoke upon you. Let's walk together. But here's the second meaning. The word yoke was also used to describe the teaching of the rabbis. All right, so rabbis, when they talked about their teaching, their, their, their teaching, it was called a yoke. And the rabbis in Jesus' day had taken the laws of the Old Testament, added all of these things to them to come up with 600 and some different rules you had to keep. And Jesus speaks into that world of 600 and some different rules that nobody can perfectly keep at all. And he says, hey, come to me. I'm a rabbi. I've got a yoke. My yoke, it's easy. And my burden It's light. Why? How is it that Jesus' yoke was different than theirs? What they didn't know then is that Jesus would ultimately go to the cross. And on the cross, he, perfect lamb of God, would die for their sins. And when he died for their sins, all they would have to do is come to him, the one who kept it. And he, through them, will give them the power to keep the commands of God. That's how we keep his commands. You know, it's a great day in your life when you say, I know that if you play on a team, you're not supposed to say this. Or, uh, you know, in school, they said, you know, you, you never say this. But it's a great day in your Christian life when you say two words, I can't. I can't. As a matter of fact, we're going to practice. All right, everybody ready? All right, it's hard for some of you. Pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. You've made yourself amazingly successful, and yet you find yourself unable to deal with your temper, unable to deal with these, the, the sinful urges. Are you ready? Are we ready? Together. One, two, three. I can't. I can't. I can't. In and of myself, it does not exist. The power. To keep your commands could never come from me. So if it doesn't come from me, it is, as Scripture says, Christ in me, right, the hope of glory. All right, so we we don't want to stop with I can't. So he can, right? I can't, but he can. So let's say that together. One, two, three, he can. He can, and he will. Every time, if we let him. So we fear him and we show our respect by keeping his commands. But it doesn't stop there. We love. Hear, command number one. Fear, command number two. Love, command number three. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All of Deuteronomy is written in light of a covenant relationship with God. So let me talk for a moment about the difference between covenant and contract. All right, if you enter into a contract, you sign the dotted line, the other party signs the dotted line, and if either of you breaks the contract, game over. All right, that's the way contracts work. 
If either of you breaks the contract, either if you're providing a service and they're paying for the service and they refuse to pay, you don't have to provide the service, right? Or if you're paying for a service, you go to Verizon, you get a new phone. They print out this thing that's like 48 miles long. And so it comes out and who knows what's on there, but we all sign it, right? We've probably all signed our lives away. And so we sign it at the bottom. And if they refuse to provide the service that we've signed off on, contract, a null and void, game over. Covenants don't work that way. Here's how a covenant works. A covenant works like this. You agree, you promise, and even if the other person doesn't keep their end, you still keep yours. That's a covenant. A covenant says, if you fail, I'm still in. That's why, that's why marriage is called a what? Covenant. Because husbands and wives will inevitably fail one another in different ways. Oh, honey, you burnt the toast, I'm out. No, that's not how it works. Honey, my mama cooked it like this, and I certainly thought you would. That's not how marriage works. No. No, it's a covenant. It's built on relationship. It's love. That's covenant. All right. I've shared this with you before, maybe last year. Uh, some of my Old Testament students are here. This is very fresh to them. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the way, Abra the way covenants worked with Abraham uh, or, or in those days was you had a, a, a more powerful king and a lesser king. And so the, the more powerful king and the lesser king are making a covenant with one another. And when they did, uh, this is the way it went down. They would cut a piece. Uh, they would take an animal, cut it in two, and they would take pieces and place them over here and pieces and place them over here. And then the lesser king would walk in between those pieces. And when he did, he would look up at that stronger king and say, may it be done to me as has been done to this animal if I break this covenant. In other words, to that greater king, rip me to shreds if I don't come through. So God shows up to Abraham in Genesis 15, instructs him to take an animal and to, and to cut it in half and to lay the pieces out. And so you would naturally assume God, who is all-powerful, is looking at a, a, a measly human being uh, called Abraham. All right, Abraham's greatness is in the fact God chose him, not that Abraham's character was worthy of being chosen. And so, so God looks at Abraham, and you would think, okay, Abraham, it's time for you to walk between the pieces of the animal, and you're going to look to God, and you're going to say, God, may it be done to me as has been done to this animal if I break this covenant. But that's not what happened. God caused a deep sleep to fall over Abraham. And when he did, Abraham is sitting somewhere to the side. And in that sleep, Abraham sees a vision. And the vision is of a boiling pot representing the very presence of God. And the boiling pot comes down. And it doesn't jar Abraham awake and say, hey, walk in between the pieces. No, the boiling pot walks, goes in between the pieces. What? This omnipotent, unbelievable God. Yeah. Why? 
He was saying to Abraham, may it be done to me. God was, as has been done to these animals, if I break this covenant. But we can't stop there. That's a moot point. Why? God's never broken a promise. So what else was he saying? He was saying, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if you, Abraham, break this covenant. Because covenants are unconditional. Did that happen to God? Yes. Did Abraham break the covenant? More than once. Did that happen to God? Yes. When he sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus was ripped to shreds. He was torn for Abraham's sin. He was torn for your sin. God, who is a covenant-making God, loves you deeply. He loves you so deeply that his promise is to tear himself apart, to demonstrate his love for you and bring you to him. There is no greater love than the love of God for his creation. God loves you. God loves you. Let me give you a little quiz, all right? Let me give you a little quiz. These are yes or no questions, and you just answer me. Is there anything you could ever do to cause God to love you more? Yes or no? No. That was weak. All right, let's try again. Is there anything you could do to cause God to love you more? Yes or no? No. Is there anything you could ever do to cause God to love you less? Yes or no? No. No. It's perfect love. It cannot be improved upon, neither can it be diminished. John in the New Testament would write in in one of his three little letters, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Unbelievable love. And so we are commanded to love in response. Hear, fear, love, and then teach. Hear, fear, love, and then teach. What do you teach? Incidentally, you teach the hear, the fear, and the love. You teach that, parents. That's our job. That's our job in the home is to teach our kids to hear God, to fear God, and to love God. And this word teach is interesting. It is a word that means to sharpen. Uh, The Hebrew word wet, like a wedding stone, comes from that. So I brought something to illustrate. And I made people quite nervous in the early service with a knife. All right, so I'll be careful. But here is a knife that we use at home, just came out of our knife block. And here is a sharpener. All right? And so this is how this knife works best. I can use this knife again and again and again and again without sharpening it. And eventually, it won't cut. But if on a regular basis, I'm going to put this near, this is what makes people nervous, near my microphone so that you can hear. Listen, here's what happens. Do you hear that? What's happening? The only way to sharpen anything is with friction. That's the only way. To sharpen a knife is with friction. This word wet 
is friction. Now, you can't see it, but if you could see right there, there's tiny specks of gray dust, silver dust. Where did that come from? This knife. Parents, please hear me. Please hear me. Your kids will have many, many friends in their life. That isn't your job. That's not your job. Oh, when they're older, yes, friendship will begin to develop. But when they're children and when they're teenagers, your job is to create the necessary friction to raise them. Guess what that means? They won't like you some days, and that's okay. They won't like what you have to say to them. They won't like the no's you give or the yeses you require. It isn't your job to be the most popular person in your kid's world. It isn't. They will arise and call you blessed, but that's later. They may bless you out first. That comes down the road. Don't expect it when they're 12 or when they're 15. That will be occasional light shining through on a dark day and you'll go, oh. But then within 10 minutes, it's over. And you're back again to sharpening to, to, to uh, just really the friction of rearing, of teaching. So how do you do it then? Well, uh, uh, Moses says this is how to do it. When you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you get up. What does that mean? Simply put, all the time. All the time. That covers every aspect of a day. When you go to bed, when you get up, when you sit down, when you walk by the way. Everything you do. You say, how does that work? Uh, our devotion's good. Absolutely. And I hope uh, I've heard from several of you going to our website or to our, our blog, Enough for Today, uh, with uh, what Alan Michael and Adrian and I are writing this week. Thank you for doing that, spending time with your families, with family devotions, but it's not enough. So, so how's, how does this look? All right, so your kid goes to school, has a tough experience with a teacher. If you truly believe that all of life is about God, how does it connect? How does it connect? That is a teachable moment. Your kid plays sports and doesn't have so good uh, an outing at a sporting event. How do, how do you connect that? Your kids get older and they, they start to date and all of this kind of stuff. How do, you, how do you connect that? All of life is full of teaching, teachable moments about God. All of it. So it's all the time. It's all the time. You say, aren't my kids going to get tired of that? No. There's some stability that comes from that that's tremendous. Absolutely grounds your kids. All right, so church isn't enough. As good as Alan Michael is and the work he does with kids' worship, gosh, his hour with your kids at 930 is not enough. It's all the time. Not only is it all the time, look at this. Uh, it says, bind them on your hand as frontlets on your forehead and, and ride them on the gates everywhere. All the time and everywhere. Right? All the time and everywhere. Do you know what? There are, it's interesting because when we first come to Christ, I think people take this most literal. 
most literal. And you remember I shared with you about uh, JB, who we encountered uh, down at California Dreaming. We were dropping Hannah off for Ecuador, and, and we met JB at California Dreaming, and he had just given his life to Christ. And so JB and I just struck up a conversation, and we've been connecting ever since. Well, he rode up on Friday evening, I think it was Friday evening, and uh, uh, came to, to meet us. Hannah was playing volleyball, and we got to hang out. And JB is on fire for the Lord. Plus, he's just spastic. All right? He's just like, you know, he's just all the time. And that's JB. I mean, he's just that way. And he said, I got to tell you what happened. And we always hold our breath when JB tells us what happened. And I said, what happened, JB? And he said, well, I was driving through Greenville a couple days ago. And when I, I did, I drove by the Bilo Center. And I saw all these people out there with these flags, these Confederate flags. And he said, the spirit just came over me and I rolled my window down, put my car in park and I leaned out the window and said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I said, JB, you're going to die. What are you thinking? And he said, it's just the spirit. He was telling Wendy and me, the spirit just came over me. And he said, I just leaned out the window and, and, and I said that. And I said, in the name of Jesus, put those flags down. And I'm like, all right, JB. <laughs> We're going to do your funeral soon. All right, so, so, but the reality is, the reality is, is that when you know and love God, you should wear it everywhere. Like on the gates, here, here. Here's the question. Students, listen to me. Montreal students, other college students, high school students, do, do your friends know that Jesus is your number one? Or is that a guessing game? Do they? When, when you walk through the high school, when you walk through the middle school, do they know that or do they wonder? Neighbors? Do they know that about you? Or is it a question? Jeff Barnes is sitting here, Jeff and Donna, and they own uh, Riverside right down here, the, the uh, uh, gas station right down the road. And every event we have, and even now on their gas pumps, are invitations to church here. So if you stop there, you'll, you'll see them. They laminate them, attach them to the gas pumps so everybody can see. That's this. That's what you do. It's all the time and everywhere. David Kraft uh, ran across a story this week. He grew up in the, the Bay Area of California in a wonderful home, great home. Mom and dad who loved the Lord and loved him. And uh, his dad just raised him in a Deuteronomy 6 kind of way. And so Kraft uh, went on to just become really a picture of uh, athleticism and, and uh, worked for FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. At the age of 32, he was six foot two, weighed 200 pounds, just pure muscle and ministry combined. Uh, all of that came to a screeching halt when he was diagnosed with cancer. And they could find no cure, 
and craft began to deteriorate quickly. So much so that this 6'2", 200-pound man dropped down to 80 pounds. 80 pounds. He was in the hospital, and it was his final days, and he knew it. And his dad was there. And David Kraft looked at his dad, and he said, Dad, do you remember when you used to hold me? And his dad said, yes. And he said, would you do it just one more time? And David Kraft's daddy picked up that 80-pound body and sat him in his lap, 32, 33 years old, and they were looking eye to eye. And these are the words David Kraft said to his dad. Dad, thank you for preparing me for a time like this. Parents, we have no idea what our kids will face. Scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust, right? Pain comes to everyone. Challenges face everybody. What we do prepares them for what may come. The sharpening, the friction that seems so frustrating to you at times is preparing your children for a day when they may have to dig deep and, and, and dive down and grab what it is that you have given. If you want your kids ready to launch into whatever world is God has for them, Sharpen the saw. Sharpen your children. Everywhere, all the time. Teach them to hear, to fear, to love. Let's pray.